Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll dig into our psalm for today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful uh, to come together to sing praises to you, to offer prayers and petitions before you, and to open up uh, the word you've given us, your word which is living and powerful, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which is able uh, to divide the soul and the spirit, uh, to to help us with discernment, to understand your will, your purposes, and to even, uh, through the power and might of your spirit, transform us into the image of your beloved Son. So we pray that you would do a work among us today, Father, as we open up your scriptures and examine this uh, delightful and beautiful psalm that you've uh, preserved and inspired for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I was studying, uh, well, first of all, a change of direction from last week. I, I was asked to preach, uh, not preach, but teach through the Psalms, a number of Psalms, and I kind of felt I haven't really been doing that to the degree I should be. We really have been looking at Psalm 110 and launching off and spending 90% of our time looking through other books, uh, Book of Hebrews particularly, and 1 Corinthians 15. So I, I thought, well, I need to end by going through an actual psalm and not leaping off into other areas of the Bible. And as I was studying Psalm 110, um, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 111. And I kept glancing over in my mind and looking at uh, Psalm 111 and thinking, man, it'd be great uh, to preach that or to teach that in Sunday school. And then Last week during our uh, prayer time, uh, we have a little devotion, and I gave a small devotion on Psalm 111, and then Justin read it during the uh, call to worship last week as well, so I thought, well, maybe it's a sign I need to go ahead and and teach a lesson on Psalm 111. And it's a beautiful psalm dealing with the the works of the God. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll spend some time uh, examining it. And uh, again, any comments or questions, uh, feel free to interrupt or respond. Uh, I like to have as much interaction as possible, and usually I... I try to go like 10 minutes short of what it would take me to teach uh, so that people can, can have questions and, and such. So uh, it says this, uh, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord. They're studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders, wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So just even a a casual reading of this psalm, uh, we see the great emphasis on the works of God, not only in a general sense, but those works are even, we'll see, are enumerated, the ones that we should praise him for. Um, Again, if if we could label this psalm, if I was clever and could come up with good labels or titles, I I may say, uh, the memory of God's wondrous works. We're to remember his works. It consists of, of 22 lines or, or colas, they're not real sentences, just sort of uh, poetic phrases, uh, each beginning with a successive letter of the alphabet. What do, what do we call that kind of psalm? One where each, the first letter of each 
line is a, a, mem a number of the alphabet, and it goes sequentially. What do we call that? Acrostic song. This is an acrostic song. Now, what does that tell us about the song? That it was made to be remembered. Acrostics make something easier to be remembered. So this goes from alpha all the way to the Hebrew letter tate. Uh, so it was there to be remembered. Uh, there are only 72 words in this Hebrew word, so it's very precise, uh, very succinct uh, summary of the history of God's deliverance of his people and what our response should be to them. Uh, it's a very simple outline. Many times psalms are very difficult to outline because it's poetry, but there seems to be a, a general outline here. Uh, the first verse, uh, there's a vow uh, of the psalmist to give thanks uh, for the works of, to give thanks. Uh, then in verse 2 through 4, the deeds of the Lord are our praise in a general way. And then verses 5 through 9, uh, the psalmist enumerates, he describes the works of the Lord that we are to praise. And in verse 10, it seems to take sort of a shift, but then uh, finally he defines wisdom. How is somebody who is uh, delights in God's works, who memorizes, who remembers God's works, how are they to respond uh, to God? And, and verse 10 says that we are to respond in fear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So first, there, there's a vow to give thanks. And the first word here uh, is praise the Lord. And it's kind of an odd part of the um, psalm because it's not really included in this acrostic. The acrostic actually starts with um, the second part of verse 1, I will give thanks. This is just sort of, of one single word. It's what we call an interjection where the psalmist just he basically cries something out before he proceeds into the psalm. And it's made up of two words. Uh, again, well, it's, it's a deep expression of emotion. It's a cry out uh, that expresses a deep uh, emotion. And it's made up of two words. Uh, the first Hebrew word is the word to, to admire somebody, to praise or to eulogize. And, and the second word is sort of a, a suffix to this is the word Yah, which is often a short version of the word Lord. And this word, when we combine it together and transliterate it, it's the English word hallelujah. So he's basically starting this psalm out with the phrase praise the Lord, which is simply one word, hallelujah. And again, that's an expression of an emotion, a deep emotion uh, expressing an admiration and praise for the Lord. Uh, this emotion drives a psalmist to a, a public resolution in the form of a vow. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. He's promising that in, in light of all of God's works and all of what he does, that he vows that he will give thanks to the Lord. Um, this outlet for emotion is a thankfulness that he will express. Uh, the reference here to all my heart indicates that this praise will be done. It will be offered willingly and enthusiastically. Somebody who does something from the bottom of his heart is somebody who's going to do that uh, diligently and enthusiastically. Uh, there's a, an excitement and, and a diligence in his giving thanks to the Lord. Uh, the heart expresses the will and affection of that person. So doing something uh, deeply in the heart is a, a deep sense of he will do it with all of his heart. It reflects an intensity. Uh, the intensity of the interjection more or less goes into this vow that he's making. Um, and this praise is probably verbal. I don't think David is sitting in his closet here, or the psalmist is sitting in his closet, you know, bowing his head, uh, mouthing these words in secret. This is something that is a public proclamation. And we see that in the next verse. Um, in verse uh, 
the second part of verse 1. He will do this with his whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation or in the assembly. So this giving of thanks is not a private matter to David. It's something that he is expressing publicly along with another group of believers. The upright here is just an Old Testament way of saying those who obey, those who follow the Lord, those who, who serve him are designated as the upright. So this is a, a public proclamation, a public giving of thanks that the psalmist offers among people of like mind who think the same way about the works of the Lord. One commentator says this, the psalmist means that they are the faithful believers, those who are living according to God's word. So this vow, uh, this praise is being given among God's people. It's a verbal public pronouncement of a man's willingness, his promise, his vow to praise the Lord publicly among the people of God. Uh, Any questions or comments? before we move on. Okay, so that's the first verse, this vow he makes to praise God. Now, what do we praise God for? Often the idea of praising God is sort of an empty term. We say, yeah, we, we praise God, but what is the object of our praise, or why do we praise God? Well, we, we praise God uh, for his character. We, we know who he is, and he, he's such a, an amazing, an awesome God, as we like to say, that we praise him simply for being who he is, a merciful, a kind, a, a sovereign God, or all things are worthy to praise him for. But often when the Bible talks about praising God, they praise him for his works, for the works that he has done on the people's behalf. And there's no conflict between that because a person's works are a reflection of the character of that person. Uh, The wicked perform what kind of works? Wicked works. Uh, The good, the righteous perform what kind of works? They perform good and righteous works. God is merciful. God is gracious. uh, Therefore, God's works are merciful and gracious. God is holy. He's righteous. Therefore, his works are holy and righteous. So in praising the works of God, we're not not circumventing his character, but we're praising him deeply for who he actually is because we recognize that his, 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 his nature and his character are in his works. Now, So according to Psalmist, the works of God are the object of his praise. And it uses a number of different words for works. Uh, It says, first of all, great are the works of the Lord, splendid and majestic is his works, and his wonders are to be remembered. And each of these verses uh, consists of a different word for the word work. There's three different Hebrew words here. And uh, some people make a big deal out of it. They try to to classify or categorize each work as doing this or that. And it's probably just he does it for variety. Uh, If you look at these words, uh, they overlap. Sometimes they can be used for God's work of creation. Uh, Sometimes they're used to describe his lightning and rain and so forth. It's just what we would call natural works. And other times the same words are used interchangeably for miracles or uh, works that God does uh, intervening for his people with miracles. The only one that probably stands by itself is the final word wonders, which is often used as a miraculous event, something that we see and are amazed. It's an unusual event that God does before his people. So they're just generally works of God. It could be works of creation. It could be works of splendor, works of uh, wonder and amazement. 
But as we see, as we drill down into what David describes here, we'll see that these really are works of, of God that he does for his people in redeeming them. Now, there are two things that are important when looking at these works. First of all, uh, the adjectives used. And the adjectives are, they're great, uh, they're splendorous, uh, they're majestic, they're wonderful. So the, these wonderful adjectives describe these works. They're extraordinary works done by an extraordinary creator and redeemer. But there's also a, a, a refrain that follows each of these lines. For example, you can imagine reading this in a congregation doing a, a responsive reading where the man would get up and read the first line of verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. And the congregation responds, uh, they are studied by all who delight in them. Uh, he would read again, full of splendor and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. The congregation would, be, would respond. Uh, the leader would say, he caused his wonders to be remembered. And the people would respond, the Lord is gracious and merciful. So there's a statement about the character of God's work then a, a response in a sense that, that further describes something about that work. And I, I think the, the adjectives are, are wonderful in what they say about God's word, but I think these uh, responses or these refrains give us a little bit more information. In fact, I think a lot more information about what the, the psalmist is talking about. The first refrain says that the, these works, these great works that God does, we're looking at verse uh, 2 right now, great are the works of the Lord, they are studied by all who delight in them. This refrain here, uh, the, the word study is a very interesting word. It, it's the word um, that looks like this in Hebrew. It's the word derash, and it means to seek something, uh, to pursue something, uh, to seek it out. And... Um, in Hebrew, when you want to make a, a verb a noun, you, what you do is you add an mi in front of it. So we, we would do this. We would put an mi, and then when you add a long vowel to a word and there's another long vowel, the second long vowel goes away. So you have this. And where do we know this word midrash from? What is a midrash? It's an intense study of God's word. People who do midrash or produce midrash are Jews who go into the word and, and intensely study it. Sometimes they'll take one word and, and spend page after page on just the possible meaning of one word. Uh, they'll take uh, the meaning of a passage and apply it differently in different contexts. Okay, this was written you know, 2,000 years ago. How do we apply it in the current context? So midrash what, what was an intense, a detailed study examination of God's word. And that's the idea here. Those who delight in the works of the Lord, what do they do? Well, they seek those works out. They study those works. They examine those works carefully to learn as much about God from them as they can. Because remember, the works of God do nothing more than reveal who God is. So in looking at his works, you're looking at something about God, what he has done, uh, how he works, and what he is like. Um, uh, we see this example, we have this idea of, of remembering or, or seeking his works. Um, uh, it, there's a number of ways that this can be done. Uh, we can look at the works God has done for us. We can often reflect on how the Lord saved us. Uh, often in my mind, uh, I mean, 
probably weekly. Uh, I go through those events in my life uh, where God saved me and examine those events and, and look at them from a fresh angle. I think of the not only the night that I was saved, but what I did the next morning, the prayers that I was praying to God, the thoughts that I had. All those are often before me examining those works that God has done. Uh, different stages in my life, how I found my first church, uh, how the Lord led me uh, to the profession I'm in, how I decided to go to seminary. Each of those events were marked by very, very providential works of the Lord that I can identify and say, well, the Lord did this, and that put me in this direction where if that wouldn't have happened, I have no idea where I would have gone, what direction I would have taken. Uh, my marriage to Geneva, the early days of our courtship and marriage, uh, the birth and growth of my children, um, how I became an elder for the first time, how I became an elder here, all those things are, are the works that God has done that personally I'm always examining and looking and seeking to see uh, what God did, what he's like, what uh, how wonderful he actually is and how gracious he was to me. Um, and again, it's not just good to study and examine the, the good things that God has done, but also the trials that God has sent her with. How many times do you often go back and take trials that God sent you through and examine those trials? Study those trials. Study your response to them. Uh, how you could have done things differently. Uh, how God led you in a direction that you followed. These are all works that God does to us uh, to be studied and, and to be examined and to be sought out. We not only examine the works he has done for us, uh, but what God is doing in history. Oftentimes in the scripture, something, some major historical event will happen, either good or bad. And, and there's this refrain where it says, and the people wondered. They looked, they saw, and they asked the question, what is God doing here? And I'm sure it didn't stop there. I'm sure they pursued the issue to look at it and examine it. Think, what could the Lord be doing here? What could be the purposes here? What can our response be to this, whether it goes in this direction or in that direction? Um, what we see in our society today that there are changes that are taking place, that there's a drift towards uh, totalitarianism. Uh, there's a hatred, a new uh, strength and hatred being expressed towards uh, Christians and the church in general. There's movements in our society today that are affecting large swaths of the population that completely upend God's created order. And how do Christians, do we just say, oh, well, you know, it, it's just going to happen. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Or do we look at these works and, and study them? Now, this assumes that God directs our history. There are people who say, well, it's just the way the world's going, and God's just kind of watching to see how it ends out. And we don't believe that. We believe God directs history that things that happen are happening for a purpose. Whenever the, these great cataclysmic historical events in, in Scripture happen, the people never say, well, we'll see what happens. No, they, they believe that it was God directing history for a specific purpose, even the destruction of Israel, them dragging them out of the land and selling them off into slavery, uh, raising up nations that were going to do that, were all controlled by the hand of the Lord. So they saw these things and they wondered, what is God doing? And we are to do the same thing. And part of it is to prepare ourselves for what if the worst comes about. We think of the response to COVID. Uh, how are we going to respond the next time something like that happens? Have we studied what took place? And have we made preparations for if it happens again, what are we going to do? Is there a better way for us to respond? Those are things that should be going through our minds. Uh, there's a, a good book. By this, and it's kind of controversial because it deals mainly with uh, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic Church, but it's called uh, "Live Not by Lies," and it's a story of what the 
church did, the Catholic church and the Orthodox and Protestant church did uh, in those nations that were taken over by the Soviet Union after World War II. Because a lot of men saw what was going to happen. They saw that we are going to be stripped of every right to worship that we have. Our buildings are going to be taken away. Our, our priests are going to be executed. Everything we have is going to be gone. And there's going to be an oppression on the church that we've never experienced before in this generation. And so these men saw this and made preparations. They said, okay, if we're going to live this way, what are we going to do? How are we going to propagate our church and the teaching of that church among the people of God? And so these men, years before it happened, they were prepared, and, and many of their churches survived. So again, this is examining the works of the Lord. This is studying his works so that we know how to respond and how to act properly uh, so that we glorify and continue to obey him. And when I look at some of the ways churches are just folded under the, the threat of COVID, you know, I wonder what if a, a real uh, totalitarian uh, suppression occurred? What would these churches do? There are churches, these mega churches, that said, well, we can't start up until we have uh, full daycare, until we have full nurseries, until we have full Sunday school, uh, until all these uh, sustaining ministries are there. We can't even think about worshiping until all these things are in their place. And other churches were more flexible, so we can cut all these things out and come together and worship uh, without all the frivolities, without the nurseries, without the Sunday school. We can do these things because the people's heart is there for worship. And so there were churches that were prepared for this, that had studied it, uh, examined it, and were willing to do what, what it took. And other churches said, well, we'll just wait until you know, the time is right. Okay. Which church had studied the works of the Lord and responded properly? I say those ones who went back to worship as soon as they possibly could without all the frivolity. So there's a call here uh, to examine, to study the works of the Lord, not just for our, our personal uh, satisfaction, our personal edification, but for the benefit of the church. Um, and again, this is to be done corporately as well. In fact, the context here uh, is probably to be done corporately. The people of God uh, as a group are to examine there, to study the works of the Lord. Um, uh, again, think of how we love to hear uh, the story uh, about a child's salvation at baptism when somebody gets up and gives their testimony. How much do we love hearing that? Uh, when uh, people get together for the first time around a dinner table uh, to talk, what's one of the first things that comes up? How are you saved? How did the Lord bring you to Christ? And then we'll ask, well, how did you meet your wife? And we, we want to know those details where it seems providence, it, it, providential events are clustered around their life. We want to talk about those. Why? Because they reveal the work of the Lord in your life. And not only do we like hearing it, but we like telling it as well. Any questions before we go on to the second refrain? Okay. Uh, the second refrain is, His righteousness endures forever. He says, uh, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. And the psalmist here is validating the fact that when God works, uh, there's something about his character that is revealed. And, and that part of the character here is his righteousness. Um, uh, Romans 9, when Paul is quoting from the Exodus, he says that, that God raised Pharaoh up to do what? to demonstrate his power. He wanted to demonstrate something, so he raised Pharaoh up, uh, destroyed him, 
so that he could show the power in, in bringing his people out of Egypt. Uh, when David went into the Lord's sanctuary to worship in Psalm 63, what did he see there as he worshiped God? He saw God's power and God's glory in the work of the sanctuary. Uh, for Paul, it is through the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the writers of the New Testament and Old Testament believe that God's works reveal his righteousness, reveal something about his glory. And often uh, what was revealed is his righteousness, his holiness. Um, again, just like they do to us. In verse 4, he describes uh, his works as wonders. Again, this is probably, this word wonders here is probably the most unique of the words. It most likely refers to um, uh, unique, unexpected, miraculous events that the Lord performs on behalf of his people. Um, uh, he has made his wonders to be remembered. Um, again, wonderful phrase here with a lot of information. Uh, what does it mean that God made his wonders to be remembered? Well, he made them in such a way that, that they, they are to sink into the mind and lodge into our hearts and, and, and not be removed, uh, something to not be forgotten. And we see the importance of this in all through the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, how often the effects of forgetting God's works, forgetting his commands. Um, the people of God under the Old Covenant would often build memorials and altars in places where God performed special acts on their behalf. Remember when the, the Jews crossed the Jordan River, when it dried up, what did uh, Joshua command the priests to do? Well, they, they took 12 stones and put them in the middle of the river. And it was a reminder when there was drought and that river was low that what God had done in bringing the people across. Often uh, they renamed places, uh, different names memorable to what happened so people, when they heard the name of that place, they would remember uh, Bethel, when Joshua, or not Joshua, um, Jacob fought God, wrestled with God. He named the place Bethel. This is the house of God. God dwells here in a unique way. Often they would just get a bunch of stones and pile them up uh, as a reminder of those passing through what the Lord had done there. Uh, so th there's this idea of doing something, marking out something special, a place or an act so that people remember what took place there. But we see the importance of remembering God's work and the negative effects of forgetting his work. Uh, an example, there's not a lot of examples of this. We'll look at three of them too quickly, one in more detail. Psalm 106, uh, it's a catalog of Israel's sins in the wilderness juxtaposed uh, against God's work in their midst. It, it says this, he saved them for his namesake that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also and dried it up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hates them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Now, what is it speaking of here? What event is it speaking of? Yeah, the, the Red Sea. Yeah, lead, lead the whole idea, whole Exodus event, and it seems to culminate with Moses parting the Red Sea and it coming up and covering the enemies. Uh, so the whole Exodus event here uh, symbolized or marked out by the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, so they saw this happen, and their response was what? to sing his praise. They acknowledge that, yes, this is a great work that the Lord has done on our behalf. But what do they do after that? It says, they soon, what? 
forgot his work exactly. And the soon here is soon. I mean, it seems days or weeks they forgot what God had done. They, soon they forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They tested God in a desert, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. What a wonderful phrase here. He gave them their request. He gave them the food that they complained, gave them the water that they griped about. But how did it leave It left them empty. Leanness of soul. Their bodies, their bellies were fed, but their souls were still desperate. Their souls were still unsatisfied. Why? Because they forgot the work of the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 18. This is uh, the last, second to the last chapter in Deuteronomy where God is ready to send that new generation into the land. The first generation had died off. Now the second generation had been brought up, had been trained, instructed by the Lord and by Moses. Now they're getting ready to go in and conquer the land. And the Lord says this to them as they're ready to go in. It says, you grew fat and grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him, this is speaking here of Israel, and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. You have forgotten the God who fathered you. So what was the great sin of Israel that caused them uh, to turn their back on the Lord, to go into idolatry? They simply forgot what God had done. And probably the most striking example of this is Ezekiel 16, and it's a, a very strong chapter, chapter that probably shouldn't even be read publicly in front of, of children. It, it's very graphic and describing Israel. And, and, and what she does to the Lord. Uh, Israel is pictured here as a, a newborn baby that is cast into the field. Uh, people walk by, the nations walk by, and, and had no compassion on her. Uh, the baby was not washed. Uh, its umbilical cord wasn't even cut. Uh, it, it was uh, thrashing around in the afterbirth of its mother is the image that is given here. Uh, and says, when, when I passed by you, I saw you struggling in your own blood. And I said, in your blood live. Yes, I said to you, in your blood live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew, matured, became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. So there's this image of a, of a, un, of a newborn baby, uh, unwashed, uh, un clothed, just sitting in a hot field, uh, squirming in its own afterbirth. And it says the nations walked by, and they couldn't even bear to look at you. They just left you there, lying in the field. No one took pity on you. No one had compassion on you. And the idea of blood here, you know, blood kind of makes our skin crawl. But for the Jew, blood was far, far uh, more disgusting to them than it was to us. Blood not only was just icky and gross, it, it made you unceremonially clean. Uh, it was a religious defilement uh, to touch blood or to come in, in contact with, especially the blood in the afterbirth of a child. There was a special disgust for that. Yet, yeah, here's this child uh, squirming in it. And what does God do? He walks by and he has compassion on it. He takes it out and he washes it. 
Uh, he says, live, it thrives like a plant in the field. It grew up, uh, but it was bare. Then it says, he, he gives this beautiful description of how God pro, uh, provided for this despised child. He said, I spread my wings over you uh, to cover your nakedness. It says, he swore an oath to her and entered into a covenant with her. Uh, he washed her with water. He clothed her with embroidered cloth, put badger skin sandals, clothed her with fine linen, and, and covered her with silk. Uh, he adorned her with bracelets on her wrists and chains on her neck. He fed her uh, pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. So he goes uh, to these great lengths uh, to show his grace and compassion uh, to this child who no one else showed pity to. But then it says she begins to trust in her own beauty and play to harlot. So she took th those gifts that God had given her uh, and offered them to idols. She played a harlot is just a, a, a fancy way of saying uh, to prostitute oneself, to sell uh, sexual favors for money. Uh, in fact, it, it was so bad that God says, look, most prostitutes, you pay them to come to you. But you, you were so bad, that, or they pay you to come to them. You were so wicked that you paid them to come to you. You took my gifts that I gave you and offered it to them to come into you. So you, you, you were far worse than a prostitute. You took my gifts and gave them uh, to these men. Yet why did this happen? Well, it says, uh, they forgot. And all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth. When you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood, because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. So what happened? They forgot. And the psalmist is saying here, he made his wonders to be remembered. And, and the price of forgetting his works are what? Apostasy. If you forget God's work, God's works, you are apostatizing. You will apostatize, as the people of Israel did. The refrain that goes with this is, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. With regards to his people, uh, his, the works that flow from his acts towards them are gracious and compassionate. In Ezekiel 16, uh, beginning, it says, No, I pitied you uh, to do another of these things to you, to have compassion on you. You were loath the day that you were born. But the Lord walks by, he sees and has compassion. And again, that compassion is explained in the rest of Ezekiel chapter 16, the way the Lord abundantly blesses her. So here we have, have the deeds of the Lord. They're praised. Uh, they're great. Uh, they're sought after. They're to be studied by all who delight in them. Uh, they are splendid. They're majestic. They reveal God's righteousness. Uh, they are to be remembered. So those are, are the general works of God, what our response is to be to them. Now, the next section is the longest, which we're going to spend the least amount of time in. Um, the psalmist enumerates the works that God has done on their behalf. So he's not just speaking of works in a general way. He's got very specific works that the Israelites are to remember, and in remembering them, they are to give praise to God for what he has done. Um, again, keep in mind, he's doing this among a congregation of believers. The assembly of the upright are there as he's offering these praises. So the deeds he enumerates are deeds performed on behalf of the covenant people. These aren't just simply uh, deeds that reflect on David's personal salvation. They're deeds that, that reflect God's salvation of the covenant community. It's not what the Lord has done for me, it's what he's done for his people. Uh, the deeds seem to all cluster around the exodus. 
which many of these catalogs of God's works often do. Uh, this, here, this is where the psalmist's mind goes when he considers the works of the Lord. Uh, it's how the Lord brought them out of Egypt. This was the great salvific event uh, that was on the mind of every Jew when they thought about God's works on their behalf. Uh, not only just leaving Egypt, but taking them through the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land. That 40-year uh, cluster of works w- was constantly on their mind as they thought of God's work. First it says he's given food to those who fear him. What, what could this be a reference to? Could, yeah, exactly. The, uh, the manna coming down from heaven. Now the problem we have here. Um, is that often when we think of the uh, Exodus event, when do we think of them as being a, uh, a faithful group of people or a group of people who fear the Lord? Um, and often when we, we think of God's acts and his people, there's an imbalance. Uh, we, we like to think of God's judgment and, and his wrath and his execution of his wrath. But often when we, we want to make sure we don't underplay that, but often when it comes to his compassion, uh, and his generosity, we often cut God short and how compassionate he really is. And uh, again, we're always worried about diminishing his freedom to judge, but often not so worried about his freedom to show compassion. Um, and, and often when God describes the people of the Exodus, uh, he describes them with very tender words, very compassionate words. They're not all just condemnation. For example, uh, one of my favorite places is Jeremiah 2. Here, uh, God is getting ready to proclaim judgment on uh, the city of Jerusalem for their idolatry. Before he does that, he reminds them of what it was once like, what their love was once like. And he says this, um, he says, I remember you in the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon him, says the Lord. So here's God re- reflecting back uh, upon a rebellious nation on those early days of their relationship. And what does he say? I remember those days in your youth. I loved you like a husband loves his betrothed, like he loves his betrothed wife. Uh, when you went after me, you, you sought me in the wilderness. You, you were driven towards me in a land not sown. Uh, you suffered greatly in your pursuit of my love. So th- there's often condemnation for the wilderness generation, but there's often great kindness and, and mercy shown to them. God expresses the deep, deep love that he had for those people in the wilderness, despite their rebellion, uh, despite the, their, their bickering and complaining, there was a deep love that God had for him. And, and that's being expressed here. He gave food to those who fear him. And there's other examples of this we could go through as well, but I think that that's sufficient. Uh, any questions or comments? Not only does he give food to them, but he remembers his covenant forever. This is important in the Exodus narrative because, uh, remember, what caused God to act in the book of Exodus? The people were in the land. They they were suffering. They were under slavery, much different from the days of Joseph. Uh, They they were being oppressed. And and what moved God to act? He says, I have heard, he says this to Moses, when he's getting ready to, to have Moses bring the people out. He says, I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, I have remembered my covenant. So what does God remember? His covenant. So when it says that he remembers his covenant forever, this would have gone back to those days in the Exodus where it seems like God forgot 
Here we are, God. We're suffering. Every day seems to be bringing a greater oppression upon us in this land. Uh, have you forgotten? And the psalmist reminds us, no, he remembers his covenant forever. So the people forget. There's a, a juxtaposition here. The people forget, but God remembers. Yes? In Lamentations 3, mm -hmm. um, when Jeremiah is so depressed, and he says in 3.18, I think my strength is gone, so that is my hope, and I don't know Remember my utter misery, the wormwood and the gall, they are always on my mind. This is why I'm so depressed. But then when he gets to verse 21, but in my mind I keep returning to something, something that gives me hope, that the grace of Adonai is not exhausted and that his compassion has not ended. Right. Again, and he's looking out over city. That's just been destroyed, just scraped bare. And I always think of the, you know, the promise is given to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, just the great blessings that, that were showered upon them in the early days of David and Solomon. Uh, and it's just gone. I mean, it, it, it's scraped bare. And, and we have no, really, uh, what the Assyrians did to, Babylonians did to Jerusalem. It, you can't describe it in public. I mean, it, it's just bad stuff, unbelievable stuff. I mean, it makes, you know, the Nazis, you know, look like kids, what they did. And uh, so he's looking at all that. And he sees it. And a man who, who deeply loved that city. And uh, he finds a reason for hope. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And again, all that hope is centered in the covenant that God will remember forever. Uh, verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his work and bringing them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Verse 6 is a reference to the uh, uh, conquest of the land, a, a great act of God. When, it, when the Jews first went, the spies first saw that land and saw the, the people that populated it, the, the, their strength and their power. Uh, there was fear. Uh, but, but a handful of them understood that the power of God was there and, and God would drive those people out. So this is a reference to not only uh, them getting through the exodus and into the land, but the conquering and, and domination of that land, of the judgment that came upon the people that lived there. Um, the works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And, and many scholars here think that this is a reference to the, the giving of the law. And it probably is. If you look at the uh, uh, Psalm 19, the second part of Psalm 19, where God describes uh, his work in the law and giving the law to the people, uh, many of these same words appear here. Uh, it's not just the Ten Commandments, it's precepts, um, uh, it, it commands, statutes are all mentioned in here as a reference to giving of the law. Uh, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Again, that the, all that we have, every blessing that we have from God comes through a covenant that he made with his people. And we should be uh, training ourselves that when we read the scripture, uh, we see this covenant language because it's everywhere. When we were looking at Psalm 72, uh, remember, it, it's a royal psalm that, that speaks of Christ, but it's never quoted in the New Testament as referring to Christ. Well, how do we know it's a reference to Christ? Well, it, it's filled 
with this covenantal language that God makes with his people. And it's everywhere. If we're willing to look for it, we see it all through the scripture. Every way, every piece of grace, every ounce of mercy God shows to Israel, he shows to his people, shows to us, comes through the covenant that he made with us. In fact, every uh, communion, what do we celebrate? It's not just the cross. It's the covenant that God made through the cross. How did Christ start out his teaching on the Lord's Supper? This is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant that his blood brings about. It's just not, okay, let's just think about the cross. No, it's think about the covenant that that cross brings into effect. Everything we have comes through the idea of a, a covenant, and we celebrate that every communion. Not the cross, we celebrate the covenant that God instituted through the work of the cross. And then it ends in, in a very strange way, uh, it, almost like it, it shifts over from a psalm to a proverb. Uh, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So how is one to respond to the works of God, if we are, are to remember them, if we are to keep them in our focus, to praise God, to thank God continually for his works. Uh, how is a person like that respond? Well, in the fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. And uh, the idea of the fear of the Lord here, uh, just a quick illustration, and then, then we'll be uh, dismissed. Uh, Gene and I are watching this movie or Netflix series about a, a volcano. Uh, in Iceland, it's going off, and the island's been evacuated, and there's just this big, beautiful, powerful volcano in the background uh, of almost every scene that, that's going off. And, and it's, I mean, it, it's both gorgeous and it's terrifying. Now, imagine an object like that. You see it, and, and you're scared to death of it, but yet that something draws you to it. You want to go up and over the edge and just look over the edge of that thing, even though you know the peril that you'll be in if you try it. And imagine that, that object being a, a sentient creature or sentient being who can speak and, and he beckons you to come. And all that, that terrible, fearful stuff is still there, but he persuades you to come closer and, and to investigate and, and to learn and, and to be amazed. And, and you're assured by his words that it will be safe. And you don't forget the smoke. You don't forget the ash. You don't forget the, the terror that's there, but you're drawn into it. So there, there's a, a desire to be close to it, to learn from it, but there's still a, a fear of, of how terrible it actually is. That's the idea of fearing God. Okay? He's terrible. Uh, an unbeliever, a man uh, in sin, even a believer in sin, approaching God is something that should terrify us. But God beckons us to come. He assures us. Uh, through forgiveness, that if we come, we will be safe. And, and we trust him that, yes, we will be safe, but all that smoke, all that, that, that holiness is still there. E even the angels, in a sense, fear to approach God, even though they have not an ounce of sin in them. They're perfect in every way, yet they still have a, a sense of dread in the presence of God. That's the idea here. When we see the works of God, uh, th th there's a dread that this God is an amazing God. He is a God to be feared. But yet, through his works, through his covenant, he beckons us to come and to draw near to him and to taste of him and to be blessed by him. So we do that with this dread. It seems like a contradiction, but it's not. We come because we're assured of our safety, yet there's still that, that sense of dread that he is a God who is beyond belief. His power, His glory, and His holiness. So that's what examining, uh, remembering, 
uh, studying the works of God should do to a person who delights in those works. Well, we don't have time for questions. Um, we'll just go a little bit later. Any comments you want to make this come up, and I'll be happy to talk about it. So thank you for your attention.